All right, let's go Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles kind of scattered around the room in the little racks beneath the seats. And so uh, if you don't own a Bible of your very own, don't have one that you can you know, call yours, uh, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe, like genuinely, wholeheartedly, unapologetically believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things in your life. But the chief thing that he uses it for is to reveal himself to his people. And I know this is going to be a shock to you, but we want you to know God. We want everything in, about, and around your life to be shaped by that knowing of him. And so if the scriptures are what he uses to do that in your heart and life, then like, let's put the pieces together here. Two plus two equals four, I think. Um, and so we press into reading the Bible, and God does good things with that and reveals himself to his people. Does that sound like a win? That sounds like a win. I'm going to call that a win. All right, so if you don't have a Bible of your own, take that one. It's going to be the best part of my day. All right, so we have made it now to the very last week. Congratulations, by the way. Very last week of our effort, our series to walk through the fruit of the Spirit. We kicked this thing off back in mid-January. Paul lists off nine things in Galatians chapter 5. That are, be, that are to be character traits, markers of personality uh, for God's people. And so the tagline uh, for our series has been incredibly simple. We're very on the nose about all kinds of things around here. What God's people look like. This is what God's people look like. Now, the fruit of the Spirit are not an exhaustive list of everything that God's people are and do. Uh, the followers of Jesus are certainly more than the fruit. The nine things are never an exhausted limit of who we are. Who we are. Uh, but we should never be anything less than the fruit of the Spirit. And so if, if these things aren't present, if they aren't m- measurable in your life and growing in your life, then that is a sign of a serious problem that we need to address, all right? And so uh, we, we took up this effort all the way back in January to begin kind of learning about each of the fruit in turn. And so we started picking them apart, right? And just walk straight through the list. And every week, every single week of this series, we're giving you the chance to kind of bump up on your church kid street cred and recite the list together, the nine fruits of the Spirit. So you ready to do that this week? I don't, I don't think you're ready. This is your last shot. If you don't get it this week, you're never going to get it. All right. Ready? Love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, God, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Everybody always gets mess up, mixed up on the goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, peace. All right, one more time. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We're getting there. Everybody's getting gold stars. I'm going to have to dig them out of the like kids' craft closet, but I'm sure we got gold stars somewhere. All right. So to help our effort... To help our effort, we kind of gave ourselves four rules, four guardrails to kind of always make sure we're applying to each of the fruit as we walk through them. Uh, deconstruction without, some, without a plan to put things back together will always leave people homeless. And so uh, we, what we have to do here is we have to kind of make sure we're staying in the lane that would honor God and honor what he's trying to get across and all those kinds of things. And so to help our effort, we gave ourselves four rules. And the first rule The first rule is that the fruit are, first and foremost, a reflection of who God actually is. It's a reflection of his own good character long before they are ever an expectation upon us. The fruit are a reflection of God's own good character before they are an expectation upon us. Our God doesn't do arbitrary. He doesn't give arbitrary commands. His commands and expectations upon us are always an invitation to join him where he already is and what he is already doing. All right? His commands are always a call for us to more accurately reflect His image. That creates a problem if you're paying attention. 
If you're actually measuring yourself, seeing yourself correctly, you notice that there's a little bit of an issue there. Because how are you doing on the day after day after day looking more and more and more like God? Anybody knocking that one out? (laughs) Me neither. It's not something I have the power to pull off. If, If my job is to look more like God, then I'm in a lot of trouble. And that's precisely why we need rule number two. The fruit of the Spirit, they don't belong to us. They belong to the Spirit. And I I cannot manufacture these things. These things don't originate out of me. I cannot wake up tomorrow morning and just decide that I'm going to make godly goodness a priority. It's not something I can just make happen out of nowhere. But that's never been expected of me. It's not what I've been called to. It's the Spirit that produces these fruit in us as we walk in step with Him, we're told. We need Him to do the work. And the Bible paints the picture that the Spirit is actually really happy to do so. It's not, it's not some kind of burden for Him. It's, it's, he's not punching the clock and you know, frustrated that He's got to work on me some more today. It's what He's been given expressly to me for. We're not merely passengers on this ride. We may, not, we may not be the drivers, but we're not merely passengers. We do have a role to play, and so our call is fleshed out by rule number three. Remember what it is? Rule number three is that we are to cultivate the growth by practicing the fruit. We die daily to things that, that we're naturally inclined to, die daily to the things that we would prefer to chase after, and we make the conscious decision to take a step forwards towards, uh, towards what we are learning that the Spirit values more. The Spirit celebrates more. And so, and so we've been saying all series long that, that as we do so, we will slowly but surely develop a functional righteousness that matches a little more closely to what we have already been declared as righteous. So through Jesus' work on the cross, those who have placed their trust and their faith in him, we have been declared holy. But by the Spirit's work, day after day, by dying to ourselves and walking in step with the Spirit, we are made holy. But as important as that is, righteousness isn't the only thing on the line there. We have a fourth rule because we're not the only beneficiaries of this fruit growing in us. Others will always be blessed by the presence of the fruit. In other words, everybody gets to eat good things when there's good fruit on the tree. Church will be strengthened, the gospel will go forward, and God will ultimately be glorified. So now that we've gotten our little rule reminder, ready to look at the very last fruit on the list? What is it? Self-control. So what is self-control? Hard. (laughs) Fair enough. We're definitely going to talk about that today. All right, so Merriam-Webster, Merriam-Webster says that it's restraint exercised over one's own impulses, emotions, and desires. Well, that sounds pretty smart. Restraint exercised over one's own impulses, emotions, and desires. Dictionary.com, if you're into that, uh, it goes with... Control or restraint of oneself. Apparently they ignored the whole don't use the word you're defining in the definition because they used both of them. My favorite definition I found this week, my absolute favorite that I found this week was from vocabulary.com. I didn't know there was such a thing as vocabulary.com. Apparently they've got a website. But they define self-control this way. Self-control is the quality that allows you to stop yourself from doing things you want to do, but that might not be in your best interest. For example, without self-control, you might burp and curse nonstop. I mean, they're not wrong. We all kind of get the gist of what all these dictionary services are trying to say, right? 
Self-control is your ability to say no to something you want. That's what they're saying. Self-control is your ability to say no to something you want. Either, either because that thing is actually bad for you or, or because other people won't understand in your situation or maybe it's because you've got some kind of strategy that calls for restraint in this moment so that you can get something better down the road, right? That's what we see as self-control. And so you fight yourself off. No, 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 I'm not going to do that thing, right? That's self-control. And Maybe you're good at the self-control thing or... Maybe you're not so good at the self-control thing. Insert diet joke here. We all kind of get it. Whatever the case, we all tend to kind of buy into the logic that if we just fight a little harder for what we want, think a little more soberly and buckle down in a few places, we'll eventually make it to whatever it is, whatever personal goal we happen to think is worth chasing. That's how we think of self-control, right? There's a problem with that logic, though. Really big problem, and it's fleshed out by the first rule that we give ourselves each week. Any, anybody think that, think that Jesus ever says no to things that he actually wants simply because, you know, he's perfect on the willpower front? He secretly wants that thing, but it's not good for him, and so, you know, he's got to be strong and dig deep and fight it off. We go in there for Jesus? If self-control exists in perfection in the character and actions of Jesus, then perhaps, just maybe, just maybe we're talking about something bigger and far more holy than just restraint exercised over one's impulses, emotions, and desires. Maybe there's something deeper going on here. And this is where we get to look at our text for the morning. So what's going on in Matthew 4? Or at the very beginning of Jesus' kind of earthly public ministry, Matthew chapters 1 and 2, uh, they, they're dedicated to Jesus' genealogy and the telling of the birth narrative, including uh, the flight to and then return from uh, the, the nation of Egypt. Uh, and then Matthew, chap- and then Matthew just kind of he skips ahead way far in the timeline. He just kind of jumps ahead like 25 to 28 years, depending on how you count some things. He just kind of blows right past that. And then Matthew chapter 3 is dedicated to John the Baptist. John the Baptist preparing the way for the Messiah. And then he tells the story of Jesus' baptism. That's happening in Matthew chapter 3. And there's a lot of debate there's a ton of debate over uh, where exactly that happens. Can you imagine that people would fight over where Jesus might be baptized? No, nah, never. Um, the Jordan River runs from north to south through the land of Israel, and, and so there's a couple of debates uh, over where exactly on that river line uh, that this story takes place. Uh, John the Baptist appears to have been working his way up and down the river. We see him in both locations, in the north and in the south, and in a couple points in between. And so there, there are two locations that often get pushed forward as the historical site of Jesus' baptism. And as you can imagine, you can pay money at both places and tour it. The first one is on the south end, towards the city of Jerusalem, where the Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea. Uh, Both Matthew and Luke tell us that John the Baptist had spent a ton of time there, that he had kind of been working just outside of the city of Jerusalem. That's kind of where that is. Uh, However, the Apostle John's account of J the B's work has him traveling as far north as a place called Bethany across the Jordan, which is not the same as the village of Bethany that's just outside the city of Jerusalem, where Lazarus lived. Totally not confusing at all, right? But at the end of Matthew chapter 3, 
Jesus comes out to John at the Jordan River, one of these two places, whichever one it is, and he insists that John baptize him. John has been calling people to repentance, to, to repent from their sin, and, and, and he uses baptism as a sign of that repentance, as, a, as an act of, of, of showing off that repentance. It's not the same thing as the kind of baptism that Jesus commands later on, but as a picture of repentance, John says, we're going to dunk you in the water and bring you back up. And so when Jesus comes to him and is like, I want you to baptize me, he's like, no, 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 you need to be baptizing me. But Jesus insists. He needs to fulfill everything he's supposed to do, and so John does it. Jesus comes up out of the water, and we're told that the Spirit descends down like a dove, and the Father speaks audibly, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Right? We learn that we learn that God the Son is perfectly obedient. That's the point. God the Son is perfectly obedient. And that's the setting as we roll into chapter 4. Mark's account of the story tells, it, tells us that as soon as Jesus crawls up out of the water, he goes to work. And so look with me at what Jesus does next in verse 1. Matthew 4, verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So we're told that Jesus goes on purpose out into the wilderness to be on purpose tempted by the devil. Hey, what'd you do this week, Pete? Ah, you know, my wife and I, we went to that new farmer's market near our house. What about you, Nate? Uh, you know, I thought it was time to finally stay in the deck. We want to get it ready for summer. Got a lot of plans this year. How about you, Jesus? <laughs> uh, I spent nearly six weeks away from civilization, refusing to eat anything so that Satan's temptation toward self-serving sin would be as deep and as intense as possible. How about you? We all got our weird hobbies, right? <laughs> the obvious question is why. The obvious question is why. Uh, why, why, would, why would Jesus do that? We're told specifically in verse 1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit. The eternal Son, who was just celebrated for his perfect obedience, was now acting on that obedience by doing what he was led to do. That's what we're told. I mean, Jesus isn't making this up as he goes along. He's sent out on purpose for a purpose. Jesus heads out to the wilderness, we're told. Now, when I think wilderness, I immediately think like Bear Grylls, YouTube camper. This isn't some leisure trip, though. Whenever the, the Bible uses the word wilderness, it's talking about being separated from provision and from safety. It's the dark, scary place where, they're, where they decided not to build the town. Jesus heads out to a place that, where, where a lot of bad things could happen, and he heads out there alone. We're also told specifically that he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. If you're, if you're new to the Bible, fasting is probably something that's new to you as well. Uh, fasting is the intentional act of giving up something, usually food, sometimes food and water, sometimes other things, but usually food, giving it up for a specific time period so that you can focus yourself on the worship of God and your dependence upon him. That's what fasting is, all right? Uh, de dependence on him to act. And so fasting is, fasting is something that the Bible points to as a good thing, um, and, and most fasts, we're told, as far as we can tell from 
adding them to a list and counting them up. Most fast are for a day or so. Some last as much as a week. But with Jesus, we're told, he fasts for 40 days, more than a month. So we've clearly stepped beyond the normal here. We've stepped beyond what's normative. And shocker, we're told that Jesus is hungry. Like if I skip a meal, my body starts to tell me about it. He's hungry. So why is he doing this? Well, look what happens next. I think it's to set this up. Verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. All right, so the obedient son is celebrated, and then the obedient son is sent out, and now the obedient son is specifically challenged on his sonship. You see it? Oh, you're the Son of God then. Okay. Okay, okay. Oh, I see you're hungry. Let's do something about this. Surely the Son of God carries that kind of clout. Why don't you just, why don't you just say the word and you know, turn, turn these rocks into some ciabatta? Give, give the command, and these stones will fix your little problem. Come on, Jesus. Now, a couple of questions that need to be answered in this moment. One, does Jesus have the authority to make that kind of command? Is he actually Lord over creation, yes or no? Second question, does Jesus have the ability to turn rocks into bread, yes or no? So Jesus can. Jesus can. But how does he respond instead? Look at verse 4. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, there are a couple of different levels that we can read uh, verse 4 on there. Uh, The first level, the first level is that somebody in the middle of a fast, refusing to give in, and instead kind of doubling down, continuing to to depend on God to sustain him. And and so in that moment, you just kind of want to like raise your hands up and go, yeah, you get him, Jesus. You tell him, right? Like we all kind of been there. I've been in those moments and. I've watched those moments. You kind of, kind of pump up your chest a little bit, and you say, "Yeah, he did it." Woo, self-control, right? Not an out of bounds way of reading verse four. But the better way to read verse four is to know exactly what Jesus is quoting. It's Deuteronomy eight three. Let me read it for you in context. At the end of Israel's own forty years of wilderness wanderings, Jesus says this to his or God says this to his people. He says, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Verse 3, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So speaking to the nation of Israel as they are getting ready to finally enter the promised land, right? If you don't know the story, they have been wandering around in the wilderness for more than a generation now because of their sin. They've been kind of deserted in the desert because of their sin. They have been sustained by God and led by God, but he would not let them into the land of rest. And now, now finally, they are receiving the law again to prepare them as a people before they go in. That's what Deuteronomy is about. 
It's a re-giving of the law. And God tells them that he sustained them during that wilderness period in order to test them and to teach them what it means to truly, and I mean truly, depend upon the Lord and obey his commands. That's what it takes to enter the promised land. This is who you are as my people. I'm the one in charge here. You need to learn this. So what does that, what does that mean for, for Jesus and what he's going through? Why would, he, why, would, why would he quote that? It means that he is intentionally linking his obedience in the wilderness with the disobedience of Israel in the wilderness. He's pointing back to a time when Israel failed and said, I'm not going to fail that way. He's pointing back to a time when Israel dropped the ball and says, I'm not going to drop the ball. Jesus is living up to what Israel was never able to live up to. He will be obedient. Israel was supposed to learn in the wilderness that bread isn't enough. What, what they needed was the word of God. And Jesus walked into the same situation already knowing and trusting that truth. See that you're hungry there, Jesus. Why don't you just turn these stones into bread real quick, solve all of our problems. Surely the Son of God has that kind of carry. No, I don't need bread in this moment. I don't need bread in this moment. What I need is God's word. I need every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So somehow, somehow, Jesus and the devil end up on, up in Jerusalem on top of the temple. I don't know how that works. Not, not sure how they travel from point A to point B. Whatever. Doesn't matter though, because these two, I'm going to guess, are uniquely capable of doing whatever they want. All right, so just happened. And based on my recent experiences with airlines, it sounds like I had something I'd enjoy. I'm just saying. The devil takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and says, hey, I know a couple of verses too. I know some Bible. Let's talk some Bible. I'm pretty sure there's a verse in there somewhere that says you'll be protected from harm. So why don't we test that little theory? Throw yourself down and let's see what happens, Jesus. And this time Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6, verse, 13, uh, verse 16. Guess what context Deuteronomy 6 is happening in? The same one as Deuteronomy 8. Israel about to enter the promised land and they're having to be re-given the law, the retelling of the law before, enters, before Israel enters in. So uh, in Deuteronomy 6, 16, it says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, comma, as you tested him at Massah. In Israel's case, in Israel's context, they did actually put God to the test. That story plays out in Exodus 17. If you're interested in learning more about it, you can read it on your own. I'm going to give you a hint. It doesn't go well for Israel. And so again, again, Jesus' answer is not merely to rebut the temptation with Scripture. No, he steps beyond that and quotes God's response to Israel's failure in a similar situation. He refuses to repeat Israel's sin. 
Look at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So again, Jesus is swept away, not exactly sure what this looks like, but he's swept away this time to a tall mountain, not told what that mountain is, right? And so some people, honestly, some people have pointed to the fact that, like, that there's no mountain on earth that can actually overlook every single kingdom on earth. And so some people have pointed that to, uh, to kind of as a proof that this is some kind of fanciful story that ought not to be believed, right? And we just should just pass it off as some kind of, you know, weird thing. And so what do we do with that then? Well, honestly, I don't think we have to do much. Honestly, somebody's getting a lot of text messages. <laughs> honestly, I don't think we have to do a whole lot. The Greek there is, isn't so formal as to like require that Matthew means every single kingdom of the world. It could just mean a vast array of kingdoms. Um, secondly, though, according to what is said, according to what is said, the mountain doesn't technically have to be on earth. I know that's weird. Um, yeah, it sounds weird, <laughs> but it doesn't have to be according to the Greek. Um, so what do we do with that? Well, if you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis uses the same kind of imagery at the beginning of the book, The Silver Chair. Some of you went, yeah, and some of you went, huh? All right. So in The Silver Chair, Eustace and Jill, they find themselves suddenly in Narnia, but they're on the top of a gigantic cliff, an impossibly high cliff, all right? They look down so far that they, they, they see stuff that kind of looks like sheep, and they realize they're clouds the size of mountains, and even further below the clouds, farther, the, farther from them to the clouds is the clouds to the ground. And so they're on this impossibly high cliff that's overlooking the entire world that is yet somehow outside of the world. Now, that is obviously a fanciful children's story. I'm not saying that that's what's going on here. What it does teach us, though, is that the people in our world who have always been described as having the greatest imaginations, they don't struggle with this. They've got some ideas about how this might work. They're fine. And so I don't know the answer. What, what mountain is it? is it? Is it Everest? Is it something else? Is it the Temple Mount? We don't know. I don't know. We're told that the devil takes Jesus to a very high mountain and shows him the kingdoms of the world. and says, you can have them all. They're all yours. Fall down and worship me. Satan's first temptation was all about casting doubt on the Father's love and care for Jesus, right? His second temptation was about trying to undermine God's word and by kind of using it incorrectly. But here in his third attempt, he just outright lies. You want to know why? They're not his to give. Where does he think he gets the authority to give away the nations? They're not his. He's allowed a modicum of control in this world, but they ain't his. If you know your Bible well, this trajectory sounds familiar to you because it's the exact same trajectory he used in Genesis 3. Did God really say? I think he might be holding out on you. Oh, you won't surely die. You know why the Patriots haven't changed their game plan in 20 years? Because it works frustrating Satan's no different you don't have to come up with some new scheme it just works but Jesus is different 
So instead of failing like Adam did and failing like Israel did and failing like I always do, Jesus says, go away, Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. This time he quotes Deuteronomy 6 again. This time verse 13. Church family, Jesus sees through the lie. He sees through the lie. Where Israel failed, Jesus fulfills. Look at verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The, the, the test now complete, the fast now over, Jesus stands victorious, right? That's what's going on here. And then, then we see that created things respond like created things. The devil flees until the angels come in to serve. Pure speculation. It's just me. But I'm guessing they probably got something tasty to eat in this moment. That's what I'd want. We learn later that Jesus goes home to the region of Galilee and he begins his public ministry. He starts calling his first disciples and he goes to work. So, so how does I mean, this story influence how we understand self-control and how does it affect the fruit of spirit that bears its name? Right? What, what do we do with that? Well, just like every week, this is why we need our four rules. Our culture's understanding of self-control, it, it rests upon a personal resolve and willpower. I will fight. I will do. I will buckle down and accomplish. But that's not what we see going on here. It's not the version of self-control that plays out in this story. Jesus is not digging deep to fight off some kind of primal urge that's outside of his best interest. I will not do that thing. I really want to, but I can't. That's how I fight. That's not how Jesus fights. What's going on here is bigger and more holy than just restraint exercised over one's impulses, emotions, and desires. Jesus he sees the world and he sees temptation in a way that is fundamentally different than the way that Adam and Israel and I see. Things he aspires to, the things he wants and pursues, chases after, they, they are instructed by and shaped by God's word rather than a bent to serve himself. You see the difference there? They flow out of a perfect love as the son towards the father. They can never, I mean ever, be satisfied by anything less than perfect obedience. So rule number one today is this true, as it's been any other week. The, the fruit are first and foremost who God is. Jesus' self-control in perfection. And the calling on us to grow in self-control it. Well, it aims us at nothing less than that loving, obedient perfection. Which means we've got a problem, right? Because how are you doing on loving, obedient perfection? I don't even do the lesser sin-filled version of self-control very well. Fall short of that one daily. A long list of failures. And so uh, this is why we need the gospel. Also why we need rule number two. Jesus has accomplished what we could never accomplish. Perfect obedience before the Father. Not a white-knuckled obedience, a sinlessly self 
controlled obedience. And because of Jesus' perfect work on your behalf, starting with his obedience in life and flowing through to his perfect obedience on the cross, the Bible teaches that if you have placed your faith in him as Savior and Lord, your sin and failure was not only paid for in that moment in full, not only were you declared holy in that moment, but the Bible also teaches that the Spirit is pleased to begin making you holy from that moment on. Spirit is pleased to grow a holy self-control in all those who walk in step with him. And last I checked, the Spirit will bring to completion the good work he began in you. It's going to take the rest of your life, but he's never broken a promise yet, so maybe we can trust him. Well, what do we do until that day comes, right? Like that's, that's a really good future promise. Kind of lean on that, depend on that, find rest in that. But what do we do today? Rule number three, we cultivate. We grow in the fruit by practicing the fruit, right? And so we continue to repent of sin and we continue to let our minds and our hearts be shaped by God's word so that we see the lie for what it is. And slowly but surely, and it's going to take a while. But slowly but surely, self-control will shift from a fruitless, white-knuckled personal effort to a word-shaped, spirit-indwelt obedience that flows naturally out of a heart that has been changed to see the world the way Jesus sees the world. Those are fundamentally different things. What about rule number four, though, right? Like, where's the community blessing in all this? I mean, it's supposed to always be there. So where is it this week? I think it's an evangelistic blessing. Um, the Bible's pretty clear, incredibly clear, uh, that the cross is a stumbling block to the Jew and folly to the Gentile. I don't know what happened. I just lost all my notes. Huh. That's weird. So, uh, the, the, the cross... There it is. All right, so the, the, the Bible's pretty clear that the cross is a stumbling block to the Jew and folly to the Gentile. So, so what does that mean? It means that the cross intentionally drives people away who would rather hang on to the belief that they're smart and strong. It just, God just kind of drops the cross in the middle of a, a world that doesn't understand a king and a savior that could do that, Right? While the cross rightly holds the unrepentant at, at arm's length, the otherworldly beauty and character of Jesus is constantly wooing the men. So you get both dynamics in an evangelistic conversation. And so a word-shaped, spirit-indwelt obedience that flows naturally out of a heart that has been changed to see the world the way that Jesus sees the world, I, I, that's an incredibly attractive thing, isn't it? You start start practicing a holy self-control in front of other people, it's going to raise some questions, especially when all they know is the sin-filled, white-knuckled effort. It'll be an opportunity to woo them in and then press the question of what to do with that bloody cross. So what do we do with this stuff this morning? How can we respond to God's Word? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus already, our, our response is the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, man, I think he's, I think he's showing us that he wants far, far more for us than some kind of religiously shaped restraint. It's not what we're aiming at here. He wants to change the way we see. And he wants to change what we cherish. 
He wants to change what we pursue. And he does that primarily through his word. So our response this week probably, I would think, needs to take the shape of pressing into the scriptures with the specific aim of correcting our affections and worldview. We dig in and we don't come up for air until we look a little more like him. That's the goal. What if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? Are, are you able to respond to God's word? You bet you are. Let me tell you how. You do that by meeting Jesus. Full stop. We want you to meet Jesus. Uh, the Bible is clear that we are all, by default, separated relationally from God because of our sin, and that we are owed the right and just punishment for that sin. The Bible calls it death. Not a pretty thing. But the Bible is also clear that it is while we were still weak that Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus lived sinlessly. He died as a sacrifice in your place. And he was raised again from the dead as a proof of the sufficiency of his work on your behalf. Now as the king who conquered both sin and death, he calls on you in this very moment to respond to him in repentance and in faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. You can do that this morning. I'd, I'd love to be helpful to you. You can respond in saving faith to Jesus. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a, that's a time that we kind of intentionally set aside to give space for people to flesh out that response instead of it just being a head thing. All right. And so if you want to talk about what that response looks like, I'll be down front here. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe it's by formally joining our church family. Or maybe it's time to say yes to being obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized. Or maybe, just maybe, it's time to take this otherworldly message of the gospel to some other far away place. We want to set you up for success there. So let's talk. I'd love to be helpful to you. But whoever you are, however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for... The perfect example of Jesus. Yes, example to follow, but also satisfaction in our place. Thank you for sending one who has perfect self-control and did not fail in the wilderness like Israel did or like Adam did or like I constantly do. We need the saving work of the cross to make payment and we need the sanctifying work of the Spirit to make us holy. So help us, help us lean into that this week. We've got all these kind of things that we're getting prepared to do. People are, think more about religious things this week than they do any other time of the year. We don't need religious actions. We don't need tradition. What we need is new hearts and new eyes new heads and you're the one who gives graciously so help us lean in well we love you for those in here who don't know you yet would you make yourself known in this moment call people into your kingdom today in Jesus name